Hello, I'm Anna Elliott and this is Blendle Handpicked. If you give me five minutes of your time, I'll give you three stories that stood out above all the rest this week. My first pick today is a kind of story that doesn't come around that often. It's from Emily Badger in the New York Times, and it's a first-hand account of what happens when a reporter brings a Nobel Prize-winning economist to the desert orgy that is Burning Man. If you don't know, Burning Man is a week-long event that happens every year in the Nevada desert that involves a pop-up city where revelers make their own entertainment. And yeah, they burn a big wooden man as part of the festivities and there are orgy tents. Its organizers call it an annual experiment in temporary community dedicated to radical self-expression and radical self-reliance. And Badger attended with Nobel laureate Paul Romer on his suggestion. Part of what makes this piece so glorious is the lyricism of the very first paragraph, and it also offers a clue as to what Romer was doing there in the first place. It was dusk on the opening night of Burning Man, and the makers and misfits were touching up their art projects and orgy dens. Subwoofers unce unced as topless cyclists draped in glowing LEDs pedalled through the desert. And Paul Romer, a reigning laureate of the Nobel Prize in Economics, sat on a second-story porch at the centre of it all, marvelling at a subtlety of the street grid. Romer is fascinated by the meticulously planned road network of the instant city, And he says the world needs more Burning Man urbanization if the cities of developing countries are going to absorb the coming influx of 2.3 billion people from the countryside. If we don't impose a structure now, it might be impossible to do so afterwards. During his investigation into how the street grid works, Roma meets various colorful characters and has a rather more authentic Burning Man experience than he bargained for. The beauty in this piece lies in the juxtaposition of the academic and the wild, and maybe that's just the point, the two aren't as far apart as we think. This 13-minute story is an utter delight, and you can find it in the New York Times. The link is in the show notes. My second pick today comes from The Economist, and it's a fascinating look at the benefits and pitfalls of part-time work. It starts by using the Netherlands as a slightly ominous example. The Dutch are world champions at part-time work and are often lauded for their healthy work-life balance and happy children, but these come at a price. In the Netherlands, three-quarters of working women are part-timers, and that's convenient for raising families. But the Netherlands also has the largest gap in Western Europe between men's and women's pension pots and monthly incomes. So, part-time work is celebrated as a way of getting women into the workforce, which can be especially difficult after having children, but it's also responsible for major gender inequalities, locking women into jobs with worse pay and prospects. And in many sectors, the market rewards people who are willing and able to work long hours into the evening, mostly men. On top of that, part-time jobs pay less per hour than full-time ones in the vast majority of cases. And part-timers are also more likely to hold jobs that don't use the worker's full set of skills. As this piece goes on, it lays down more and more statistics that show how much of a bind women who work part-time are in. Even high flyers in elite occupations who go part-time find that they are less likely to be given pay rises or promotions. And many female part-timers never go full-time again, even if their part-time work was intended to be short-lived. I could go on listing statistics from this piece, but you've really got to read it to get the full effect. 
It ends by looking at the other side of the coin. Men who work part-time are more likely to be discriminated against in future job applications than men who work full-time. The double standards here all converge to mean that when faced with the decision, an opposite-sex couple is more likely to scale back her career than his. For gender equality to really advance in the Netherlands and other Western countries, those double standards need to be knocked down. To understand more about this dynamic, check out the full five-minute piece in Friday's Economist. Last but not least today, I've got a short but powerful piece from Simon Cooper in FT Weekend about how European decision-makers view the Brexit endgame right now. And if you still hope Brexit never actually happens at all, this might be hard to swallow. With the whirlwind of recent news from the British Parliament, it's easy to get caught up in what the British will end up doing. Will they hold another election, or even another referendum? What if they cancel Brexit altogether? But what often slips through the cracks of stories on Brexit right now is how the rest of the Union as a whole will deal with Britain once that decision has been made. In the early days, the assumption was that EU decision-makers wanted Brexit to go away just as much as Remainers did in the UK. But now, that doesn't appear to be the overriding feeling at all. Cooper spoke to politicians, diplomats and business groups across the EU to come up with this punchy rundown, and he found them remarkably united around a tough stance towards Britain. They're not interested in renegotiating a deal with Prime Minister Boris Johnson, but they also dread the prospect of the anti-no-deal forces postponing Brexit any longer, especially in the form of a second referendum. Patience is running thin, and the prevailing view now is that even if Britain stayed in the EU, the vocal Brexiteers would then become a Trojan horse inside the Union. But over and above that, Brexit is already happening in the EU, especially amongst businesses who are shifting from British suppliers to European ones. For many, it has become yesterday's problem. As one Dutch Parliament member put it, we thought the Brits were rational pragmatists. Well, they aren't. For more insights on what European leaders feel about negotiating with Boris and about the Irish backstop, check out the full four-minute story in Thursday's FT Weekend. Thanks for joining me for this week's top stories. Check out the show notes for the links to the articles. And if you want to read more, you can go to blendle.com and subscribe to the Daily Digest newsletter, which we send out at 8am Eastern. If you want to get in touch with your thoughts on the show, you can email me at editorial at blendle.com and you can follow us on Twitter at Blendle. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next week. <laughs>